So when you get into a room and you're debating with someone from Harvard and you didn't make it there mm. and you win that round, yeah. it changes something inside of you. Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of Entrepreneurs of Asia, the show where we profile and highlight the lessons learned from founders, investors, and entrepreneurs impacting the startup ecosystem of Asia. For this week's story, facing hardships and challenges growing up and having the chance and luck of having the right mentors and teachers can help mold your interests and cultivate your curiosity. Following your curiosity will always be critical on your path to entrepreneurship as work will cease to feel like work and the process of solving problems or developing skills will allow you to dig deep and go far. This combined with an early exposure to contrasting ideals and traveling around the world can propel you to greatness. This is part one of Andrew Nyananatham's story of how he eventually rose from a small town, Ipoh, Malaysia, as a minority to breaking into BCG the Boston Consulting Group, one of the most prestigious consulting firms in the world, despite having a system working against him. Andrew is not your typical guy. He came from a non-target school. He did not go to an Ivy League or Oxbridge and was part of a schooling system that didn't allow him to flourish despite being a top student. His entrepreneurial journey really takes off in part two where he eventually becomes a key leader of Lazada before and after the famous Alibaba acquisition. Part 1 is a fascinating dive into what it is like growing up in Malaysia, the hardships minorities can face, and the super fascinating world of debate, and how that defined much of who Andrew is today, which led him to the consulting world. Sadly, Part 2 was lost due to technical difficulties, but the silver lining is we can record Part 2 again later and recap the lessons we learned which will allow us to go even deeper into the role that Andrew paid for himself in his later career. Part 2, which will be released in a few weeks' time, is an episode you also don't want to miss, as it covers what the future of e-commerce looks like, the whole saga of Rocker Internet's involvement in Lazada, and the changes that took place when Alibaba took over. As usual, if you're not a big fan of the biographical section, feel free to wait for Part 2, or to read the description to find the parts you are interested in. Let's dive right in. Andrew Nyananathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. So, uh, full disclosure, I guess, uh, Andrew uh, is Amy's significant other. Amy is the, the co-founder of Amazing Grace, who we interviewed last week. Um, and Amy had mentioned a very interesting fact about you uh, that I, I had no clue about. She told me that you were an international master debater. <laughs> I, I think calling myself a master debater might be a, a bit of a stretch. <laughs> so, to, to be clear, it's an international master Debater, yeah. So, um, so before you know, we kind of get into that. I'm curious what what led up to that. Um, how, how much did you struggle in your childhood growing up? How much did I struggle? That's a it's a very interesting question. Um, I think for context, I I grew up in a you know fairly good family that was uh, always together the whole way. Um, my mom and dad were uh, so mom was like a. She worked in the government. She was a nurse for a government hospital. My dad was a was a clerk. He worked in a in a lawyer's office, um, but you know they they provided a really good household for us to grow up in. Um, at the same time, you know we're we're low middle income, but in Malaysia that doesn't mean much. You don't you don't you don't perceive yourself as as not having too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we grew up with. You know, food on the table. We went to school. We didn't really struggle mm-hmm. um, from an economic perspective. But today, there's a lot of things that I didn't get when I was younger that I reflect on, and and it um, 
I, I see that I didn't get that in the past, but I didn't know that I didn't have that, right? So things like going on international holidays, which everyone takes for granted. Mm-hmm. I First time I got on a plane, I was 18. Uh, I'd never left the country before then, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or Which now I take for granted, but but that's something that, hard to say that that was a struggle, just mm-hmm. didn't really have it. And so lower middle income, yeah. uh, can we get some context of what that means? Maybe, because for me, I, I grew up in America, lower middle income, Actually, I'm not too sure even how I would place that. So I guess there's like middle, middle class, lower middle class. Would it be like lower middle class? Lower middle class, yeah. Lower middle class, okay. yeah. So it means, yeah, so you're, you're definitely not, you're not starving. Yeah. You have everything you need. Correct. Um, I mean, I mean, there were some times when it was really rough. Like in Malaysia, we had the financial crisis in 98. My dad lost his job. You know, there was a bit of a rough time for, for all of us, but... Your father lost his job as a lawyer. Uh, so he was a clerk in a lawyer's office. A clerk in a lawyer's office, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, and you grew up in another. Uh, which state did you grow up in? Perak. Perak. So. What is what is Perak for? So so specifically, I grew up in Ipoh, um, and Ipoh is known for its food. Uh, it's known for uh, so it's mostly a, a Chinese predominant um, city. Uh, don't know if we can call it a city. Well, it's more than a million people, so it's probably a city. Yeah, so. uh, <laughs> and you know, just generally. Um, Good food, very chill. Um, you know, it's it's not a large city like Kuala Lumpur, so it, it means that I think we had one mall growing up. Now there's two, uh, so so you know your hangout spots yeah. are a bit limited on the weekends. Yeah. Um, but we were very close to nature, so you could you know take your mountain bike, go out to the to check out a waterfall on on weekends if you wanted to. Very chill city to grow up for. And uh, you know, for your, for your childhood, so you grew up in a predominantly Chinese city. Did that affect how you saw things or how you, how you identified yourself? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Amy brings this up every now and then um, that I tend to like Chinese food even more than she does, <laughs> even though she spent the first seven years of her, her life in China. Um, but it's little things as well. Um, you know, I um, generally, everyone picks up very, very little bits of Cantonese because you live in, in Ipoh. Uh, and, you know, there's some funny incidents. For example, the first kindergarten I ever went to was a Chinese kindergarten. Oh, okay. And that was simply because it was the closest kindergarten to my house. And it was just, uh, you know, like a daycare for my parents, right? They could drop me off there. So I actually had kindergarten in Mandarin. Like, f- okay. for for a year and a half, I would do, um, you know, lessons in, in Chinese. And I didn't think anything about it. Um, but I didn't continue my primary school in, in Chinese. Okay, so and you actually had to learn Chinese. I had to learn Chinese, like I could, I mean, at a level of a four-year-old, five-year-old. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, do you, does that any of that stick, do you know? <laughs> I, I can count to ten, I, I know what chicken is, but yeah, that's about it. Okay. Uh, how did your childhood frame your thinking around school and its role it played for your future? Um, so, I would say that I was definitely... Um, a bit different from most kids in the sense that, um, so I, I had a, um, um, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, my mom probably can correct this. I started speaking pretty late. Um, and then, but I started reading pretty early. Right. So I was a kid who was in my head a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. I I started picking up books and, uh, you know, my parents kind of encouraged that behavior of picking up books because it it would shut me up most of the time. Mm Um, and that actually had a bigger impact on me growing up, right? So going to school, Malaysian public schools, just generally, um, you know, I saw it more of, of a place to, to socialize, to be around people. Uh, and it was like a fun place to grow up. I generally did fairly well in school. Um, you know, 
got bullied like everyone at some point in school but also had like really cool friends so it was a more social thing but i spent a lot of times in my head reading and that kind of shaped a lot of my thinking growing up more than school itself did so you were more of a introvert growing up would you say tough to say younger ages definitely younger ages definitely i kept to myself a lot when i was young but at some point i definitely switched and become became the the class clown why why do you think you were more introverted than I don't know. I I, I don't yeah. You don't think it was your context or family or I think I definitely may have been, you know, just weird enough with my questions and and methods of thinking that mm-hmm. I was a bit more introverted, but mm-hmm. I definitely figured out how to flip that and and enjoyed being more social afterwards. So was it more of like this uh you pursue a thought and keep going deeper like um keep asking questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My family would tell you that I was very annoying with asking why about everything. Okay. And was your family like that at all or were they the opposite? No. I no one in my family was like that. So you were the only one like I that. I was definitely okay. odd. Yeah. So I, yeah, like you mentioned, so you actually did well. Uh, what does that mean? You did well in school. I mean, uh I probably got to put a pinch of salt in that. But yeah. <laughs> um academically I did well. So I had a uh, you know relatively good grades all the way throughout school. I was generally, you know, top 1 or 2 in my class. Okay, so uh, the top of the top of the class. Yeah, but I say it with a pinch of salt because I didn't have the best discipline record either. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, the best student in terms of you know, being uh you know, on time to class, being, you know, I had, I had a bit of uh, dilettant behavior uh especially in my teens. Okay. Well, but that's interesting because uh, you eventually got the Telecom Malaysia scholarship, right? I did. I and, did. And that was for university? Yes. It was for uh, university. And, and to be clear, Telecom Malaysia is uh, Malaysia's largest yes, telecom, telecom company. That's right. right? Um, how did you get that scholarship then? So, I think this takes and this kind of uh, gets back to your earlier question of uh, of struggle um growing up. So, so growing up wasn't so much of a struggle, but I think what happened was when I was 17 is when I started to really realize the limitations that the world had. So, in Malaysia you you can grow up in this very interesting bubble all the way till you're 17. And that's because like generally we have, you know, we have great healthcare, well, in my opinion great healthcare, uh you know, it depends on who you ask and pretty decent schooling system all the way till year 17 right mm-hmm. so you can spend um basically 7 to 17 in the malaysian schooling system feeling like nothing's missing um but then what happens is at 17 you kind of need to figure out where you go on next in life mm-hmm. and that's when reality hits you so for me it was it was a double whammy of two things so i had you know pretty good grades coming out of um So SPM is, you know, the American equivalent of year 12 in Malaysia. Yeah. Uh and I would say with my results I was probably like top one first percentile, second percentile. But um and in all my life growing up, I kind of assumed I would have gotten a scholarship and got into uni, most likely abroad mm-hmm. at 17. So that was like my ticket to to freedom, right? I thought I would grow up, get the scholarship, get out and do something interesting. Where did that come from that drive to it sounds like you weren't happy where you were True I mean I was in a small town right so Ipo generally small town in terms of and I was very curious and inquisitive when went the world outside always seemed bigger mm-hmm. I was I knew I wanted to study physics from a young age mm-hmm. uh I was obsessed with physics mm-hmm. I I dived deep into a lot of topics I I did the math olympiad I was you know I was a uh, you know pretty obsessed with mm-hmm. with getting into science 
Um, and I knew that to get that, I'd have to get out of Malaysia. We didn't have the greatest research institutions. And um, I took it for granted that I would be in the States or in the UK and in, in a university studying that. Yeah, and we, we actually touched upon that on the on the drive. To yes, the, we did. Right? And uh, you, But you said that, right? So you had this affinity towards STEM. Um, and then you eventually had gone on to multimedia university. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, what is multimedia university? So uh, multimedia university, MMU is a university created by Telecom Malaysia. Um, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So, so Telecom Malaysia actually created MMU and that scholarship is kind of tied to it as well. Okay. So, so uh, you had to go there. Uh, the other way around. So, so the context I was trying to build up for you is um, I knew I wanted to get into STEM. And then I, I did this very interesting thing, which is, so what happens in Malaysia is uh, when you finish your SPM, you wait for your scholarships and the scholarships come. So you, I think you get your results in like, I, I can't remember exactly when, like you finish school at, at, at December, then you wait like six to nine months to get your results. And in that time, a lot of us just end up going to local universities because you can go there for free and not pay for your first semester while waiting for your results. So, so it's like a cool backup option that you have. Um, and so I went to MMU because they had this cool course called financial engineering. And I thought, you know, I wanted to check it out in my few months while waiting for my scholarship. Ah, so it's something that just, well, okay, what attracted to financial engineering? Because it's not STEM, right? Well, it is actually from a STEM background, right? So financial engineering is... Uh, as guys who did physics or statistics um, and then applied that into finance. I, I read a book when I was 16 called The Vandal's Crown, uh, given to me by my math teacher at the time. And it was about deriv derivatives trading and, and currency trading and the foundations of financial engineering. And I was, you know, at that time, very interested in that topic. Um, and I think I always had a bit of a practical bent as well. So for me, it was like, I could see myself doing STEM, but I wanted to see how could, I could apply that in the real world. Financial engineering gave me a little bit of a leeway to do that. So I got into MMU never with the intention to stay there for the full degree. If you're looking back on your experience now that you're yeah. much older, do you, do you think you were lying to yourself? Because did that drive you further away from... Because uh, you told me in the car you actually wanted to do maybe science or something yeah. more related to that. Absolutely. I think... I think... You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and your reality is what it is at the time that you were making those decisions. And when I think about my decisions at the time, I, um, I didn't know much about what it would take to get into science and physics, um, and I wasn't surrounded by people who knew much about it either, right? So I didn't have people that I could ask questions about and understand the way to do it. What I did see was that whatever you studied had to be applicable to the real world that it had to create some kind of a job in the future. And so I think I definitely had a fear of if I pursued science, I didn't want to be a 29-year-old doing my PhD uh, and being jobless mm -hmm. uh, because I think my more immediate urge was to become economically self-sufficient um, and to some extent, get out of Ipoh and get to a bigger city, right? So for me, that was the the, the core drive. Mm -hmm. um, if I look back, I thought I would get a scholarship and be able to get out even further. I went to MMU as like a as a stepping stone, and then eventually ended up realizing that I didn't have any scholarships to go abroad. Why not? So, I mean, I don't know how much of that I can speak about during this podcast, but it comes down a lot to Malaysia's uh, affirmative action policies. Ah, that's that's completely up to you what you want. To right. Deal. So, so I guess you know, for me, seventeen years old was the year I realized two things: one, that I was low middle income. Mm -hmm. And my parents weren't going to be able to afford to send me abroad, mm -hmm. uh, which was 
first whammy and second whammy was I wasn't going to get help from the government, mm-hmm. right? So I was 17 and suddenly the world became real. Uh, yeah. Just before you elaborate further, right? Um, you say affirmative action, but it's closer. Is it closer to reverse affirmative action? It is reverse affirmative so, so action. The majority gets the benefit. Yes. So in Malaysia, if you're not from the ethnic majority group, um, you have slightly less access to scholarships, access to public education. And for me, um, I didn't realize how much of a limiting factor this was. But for a sense of scale, you. I don't know which percentile you can be in the uh, like the academic results for the ethnic majority group and still have access to scholarships. Yeah. But as a minority, I was in the top percentile, top second percentile, and I still had no access still. No access yeah. to scholarship because it was very competitive among the few of us. It's interesting because you point out you didn't really uh, understand the magnitude or the impact that could have. Yes, I only learned about this kind of stuff over the past few years and. Um, you know, coming to live in Malaysia for five years now, I also live in a bubble, mm. right? So our friends and our network usually are coming from more probably wealthy backgrounds. They went to private schools. They studied yeah. abroad. Um, and then it was very uh, contrasting and jarring to see kind of like Reddit forums from, you know, our Malaysia that you, there's a lot of minorities actually speak out that their life is actually a struggle mm. and really hard. But like I hung out with minorities like Chinese is a minority in Malaysia yeah Indian is a minority in Malaysia but um, so I mean you actually lived it and you so did you really feel it then or uh, is it only something you realized later on that it could, your life could have been a lot different because of that so 17 was when I realized it right mm-hmm. so so the 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 two months when I was in MMU the first two months was you know there's a lot of us who got in with a very similar like uh, background. We all picked financial engineering because it was the hardest, so to speak, major in MMU. So it was generally a big class of like really sharp kids with good results. And then I remember people just leaving because they'd get their <laughs> letter. Yeah, they'd get their letter saying, you got the JPA scholarship. And then, you know, five of them oh, would leave. Okay. And then the next one would say, we got the Petronas scholarship. And then five of them would leave. And that, that class kept getting smaller. And I kept waiting for my letter. And that didn't happen. Um, And then I had to confront the reality of this isn't going to happen. I'm not going to go abroad and had to decide, do I stay in Malaysia or not? And and this is you actually, you had, so you did apply and you did try. I did. I tried for, uh, um, but it's, it's funny, right? Because you also get, um, you, you also get, so there's two kinds of scholarships. You get the full scholarships, which I didn't, um, abroad. And the second one is you also get partial scholarships. And so this partial scholarship is when you have to confront the reality that you don't have what it takes to pay for the half, mm. <laughs> right? Okay. And so, yeah, and they work in different ways. So I had this thing called the ASEAN Merit Award, which is basically an award that lets you study in Singapore. But you've got to pay, I can't remember how much up front. And then I kind of had to confront the fact that I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. Um um, and, uh, and so, so 17 is a year where I think most Malaysians generally come to realize the limitations of being an ethnic minority or being middle income or lower. Mm. And at that point, you, at least for me, the experience was to go through a, a slightly angry phase. Mm. Um, um, and I think if I was braver and had more exposure, I would have, probably gotten out of MMU, maybe done the SATs, try to apply for scholarships abroad. Yeah. Um, but given that I was already there, then I did the next best thing, which was I tried for a telecom scholarship and I got that. So telecom paid for my education. Okay, so you actually 
kind of went to MMU as a temporary thing, but only got the scholarship later. Yes. So that's, that's what you meant earlier. Yes. Yeah, it was not because of the scholarship you went there. Correct. I see. Correct. So I, I, in my second semester, I applied for it and then I got it. And then they paid for my full education. Um, yeah. And you're, you're, so do you think your family could have also guided you better or um, why, didn't, why, why don't you think that you were able to see a different kind of path? I gotta pick my words carefully in case my mother's listening. <laughs> but um, I think the way I understand it today is everybody has their own reality at that time, and they only knew the things they did, right? So yeah. my my parents never went to to uni, um, and my mom did a nursing um, certificate, but they tried their best, right? They put us through school. They, they tried putting us through tuition. They, they ferried us around. They, they got us to speak to people that they thought knew better about these things. But, you know, was that enough? No, right? Because we didn't have the confidence that certain things would work, right? I mean, yeah, so it's, it's, there's always a, a broader picture, right? It's par- partially systemic, partially the, the smaller pictures of the family in the background. So, I mean, it's like, like you said, hindsight 2020, and you yeah. can't really blame anyone. Right? Correct. Everyone's doing their best at the time. Um, so how does this culminate into you becoming a master debater? <laughs> so, let's see. Um, so I got into MMU, and incredibly, actually, that's a really good question, because what actually attracted me also to MMU was MMU had an incredibly good debating team, probably the best in Asia at the time. Really? Yes. In all of Asia? In all of Asia at the wow. time, right? So there were two universities doing really well. One was MMU and the other one was Ateneo, which is a Filipino university. Um, so there was a guy in MMU who I met when I was actually still in high school and his name is Logan. And uh, Logan to me was an incredible debater who was impressive. Like I saw him on stage during one of my national tournaments when I was in high school. I was debating in high school already, um, but high school debating is, you know, rote memorization and not really very critical thinking, um, um, uh, you know, completely different field. So I got into MMU and at MMU is when I uh, enrolled in a debate club. I had Logan as my first coach. So, you know, my, my debate hero, so to speak, was now coaching me, which was kind of cool. And they generally had this really amazing debate club. Um, which formed actually the bulk of my university experience. I, I have to say, like, in uni, I probably spent 70% of my time in debating and debating tournaments, even more than I did in classes and stuff around that. Why that was incredible was, I think that formed a big part of who I am today, right? So debating, so competitive debating is something where you go into a round with a topic, you have 15 minutes to prepare for it, and then you go in there and you're debating um, seven-minute speeches against some of the best people in the world, right? So, you know, in, in a year, you have basically three seasons. You have the Asian season that lasts four months. So that's like, if you think of them in concentric circles, so you're starting with a smaller region. Then you're moving to the Australasian, so Australia, Australia New Zealand, uh, Asia. And then you have the Worlds, which happens in December every year, so the World Championships. And you do three of that every year for four years, right? Uh, it's an incredible learning curve. Uh, it gives you that exposure to hundreds of thousands of people from around the world who uh, are top of the class in terms of critical thinking and exposure. And to become a really good debater, A, you've got to practice a ton. B, you've got to be intellectually rigorous, which means, you know, thinking logically, having uh, a mindset for critical thinking, but also doing a ton of research, right? So you get pretty complex topics. Like you get, you know, 
uh, at worst, it would be something crazy like, you know, this house would recommend that the United States pulls out of Syria immediately. You have to understand the complexities mm-hmm. of the United States presence in Syria, what it means for Kurdistan in case that comes out as a argument. You know, you have deep topics like abortion, uh, legalizing homosexuality, which at the time was controversial, today mm-hmm. less so. Um, very deeply controversial topics and be able to think from both sides of the debate, think holistically, but also be able to get into the the mind of the opposition, right? Mm-hmm. So it develops a very thorough set of thinking. You develop good rhetoric. You become good at speaking. You you get over your fear of public. It's also incredibly fun. I mean, you spend a week at the world with 2,000 people your age who are smart and love to drink. <laughs> and so it's like big party atmospheres, right? So generally, uh, incredible time. Um, I wasn't much of a master, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak. But, but you uh, won so many... Competition. I want I want tons of, of awards uh, towards the, so in in Malaysia at some point so closer towards the end of my degree I got pretty good uh, won the Malaysian debate open I won the Asian British Parliamentary which was uh, you know one of the harder ones in Asia um, and a lot of uh, best speaker awards so that was that was cool but it wasn't so much about the awards like when I look back obviously that's what we were trying to win mm. uh, you know I'm still bitter that I didn't go very far in worlds for example. Uh, Although, you know, the Worlds did interestingly develop my policy bent. So at Worlds, to give you a sense of scale, 32 teams break from about 400 teams that join the Worlds. Um, and of those 32 teams, they tended to come from English-speaking countries. Um, during my years, we pushed policy to increase um, the break from 32 to 48, simply because there were a lot of Asian teams between 32 to 48, and we wanted to get more of them into those top brackets. Mm-hmm. Um I worked on affirmative action policies for women in the Australs. Uh, so those kinds of thinking, you know, still upset I didn't break in, 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 in at the worlds and I, I didn't do that well, the Australs, but you know, uh, it helped change my perception and, and, and push the way forward. Okay. So I have two questions. Yeah. One, one about debate, but before that, you mentioned that, uh, you started this in high school. Yeah. How, how did you get into it in high school? It seems. How did I get into in high school? So in high school, I was, again, very active extracurricularly. So I did, uh, so my school was popular for uh, musicals and theater. Um, so it's a, so some context here is ACS, the school I went to was found in 1892, I think. So very old school, one of these ex-colonial schools in Malaysia. So there's a couple of schools that were set up by the British. And so hence had a very strong drama theater side of things and also debating. Right. Um, so got into drama and theater and then got into debating. Debating was because of a lady called Miss Fu. Uh, teacher. Teacher. Yeah. Teacher wasn't my actual class teacher, but she led the debate team. And she was, uh, in, in Malaysia, we say chili party. She's tiny, but very fiery. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, and she got us to think critically as well from that young age. Like she was incredible, uh, you know, in- incredibly encouraging and pushed us towards um, bigger tenements. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think there's a, a theme of you growing up. Um, you kind of wanted to get out. I think because you had some maybe early exposures of, of the outside world, you kind of were able to introspect and have self-awareness of that, you know, you wanted more. But I think what was key in that, you know, there's a few pivotal people who kind of changed your experiences that introduced you to new things that kind of kept compounding yes. to more eye-opening experiences. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. And so then you eventually got into this whole massive debate, uh, you know, your career, I guess you could say, for university, right? Um, and then h- how much of debate 
Because, I mean, you're not always going to get a topic you agree with, right? But you still have to debate it. Yeah. So how much of it is really trying to win versus actually getting to truth? And I, I would suspect there is some truth in it because it actually changed how we thought, right? Eventually. Like you yes. Um, so this is, are, are, like, what do you see when you're debating, especially at that higher level, right? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing people just trying to, just to, to fight? It's more, is it more tactical and just people trying to win only and get the points because they know the right techniques? Or is it really actually scratching towards getting towards the truth. Mm. That's actually a great question. I think I think um, there is a point in debating where you do feel like it's just purely optimizing to win and it's tactical. And, you know, people will generally believe in one thing but then fight for something else just to win the debate. Mm. But to get to that, so it's not what you do in those seven minutes, it's what you do in the months leading up to it. Because in that process, you're actually researching both sides very thoroughly and trying to get to the mind of the other side and develop arguments for them, then rebut those arguments, then develop arguments against those rebuttals. As you do that, you develop a very distinct theory of mind for both sides and you try to seek through. So you come up with strong opinions about that, right? Um, But inadvertently, you know, um, you will come across eventually the the idea that all this is for naught you're just discussing stuff but not really creating change in the world i think a lot of people do leave debating with a bit of a feeling like jaded jaded, right great conversations great debates but all we're doing is just talking right Mm -hmm. i mean i guess you're young you don't have a context to apply it to i guess which leads to my next question what is the kind of the best direct applications of your debate skills that you employ today or maybe it's helped along your career yeah entrepreneurship anything absolutely i think um looking back so you know you you mentioned the word compounding right i don't think i would have gotten my first job at bcg if i wasn't a debater like that was a big part of of my interview conversation um nearly in every round at bcg right and and it was also just the leadership positions i took so i was um i tried to always have um you know some kind of of leadership positions within within the councils that were running debate tournaments and so um so i was like representative for asia at the world universities championship and those things came across like bcg hired people for leadership qualities right um so that was one two was the f- so it opened doors yeah. right two is it it made me a much better critical thinker um and that helped a lot like strategy consulting required that kind of thinking and just generally like it just helps you be a better thinker um three is the ability to speak be economic with your words because you have only seven minutes to present very complex arguments. You learn to be very economic with your words. Yes, concise. Um, And then ultimately it taught me how to coach people because I had to develop teams uh, and be developed as well in that process, right? Mm -hmm. So you develop a a, a thought process on how to groom the next generation as well. Um, Yeah. So so it sounds like, um, yeah, you you had compounding experiences that were... Uh, opening up many doors by you actually attempting to do them like debating and, yes. and maybe trying to go to uh, go trying attempting to study abroad even though you were constrained and then you have this uh, more of this compounding effect where you have experiences that are pushing you to the very early foundations of leadership absolutely right? which is you know, like coaching in, in one sense absolutely mentorship um, and you trying to get on all these councils um, what made you want to get on these councils then um, to actually elicit change because I felt that there were things that were broken in the way we were doing things okay. and I definitely wanted to change the way debating worked like you, it becomes a big passion project it takes most of your life and then you start dreaming and thinking about it and thinking about how it can be better right you were digging a well yes you found a topic and you kept digging you kept digging you kept digging and uh, as you kept digging you kept solving problems and you kept opening more doors absolutely right? absolutely okay so I guess 
uh, before going forward, uh, at this point in time, uh, you, I think throughout university, like you said, it was all debate. Uh, and before that, you thought you were going to go into STEM, and you yeah. thought that you were going to leave, but now you were stuck in Malaysia, uh, and your, your whole world is now debate. How did you envision your future at that point in time then? Very interesting question. So let's try to break this down. I think one was a, it took a while and a bit of an internal struggle to realize that STEM wasn't going to happen. I think I, I still in my head believed that it would happen at some point, but then probably around year one, year two, I said, MMU didn't have the best, like, and to be, to be very frank, I wanted to do theoretical physics. No, there weren't the very, physics. yes, that was, that was the dream. And, and there weren't very many good schools in Malaysia to do that. Right. I mean, I could have done engineering, but I wouldn't have, you know, scratched the itch. So for me, ultimately the decision was, I think I even waffled on indecision between doing engineering and financial engineering and eventually just settled on financial engineering. Cause I said, I think my context very bluntly and, and kind of sad when I look back at it was I'm going to make money. Mm -hmm. I want to make money first before anything else. Uh, STEM can come later. Interesting. I can always read good books about physics later on in life. Right. <laughs> Number one. Number two was the fact that debating actually gave me a lot of the things that um, I would have gotten from an international experience. Right. Mm -hmm. So I traveled abroad a lot. My, my first, uh, Actually, pretty much all my travel in my early adulthood was for debating. I flew, you know, I went to Singapore all the time. Uh, went to Philippines. We, we, my, my first world championships was in Turkey. I think that was the furthest I've ever gone. And then the next year I went to Ireland, right? I had like my first trip to Europe was because of debating. My first trip to the Americas, I think, was because of like debating opened up the world to me and then exposed me to all these different people and their styles of thinking as well, right? Which is what you would have gotten out of if I studied abroad. Um, so I got to do a lot of that. Um, and it also built like this very interesting network of like-minded thinkers, right? Which I could, was then exposed to um, at the same time. Mm -hmm. And do you still keep in touch with any of your debate friends? Yes, actually surprisingly, yes. Uh, it's, it's really funny looking back, right? So MMU had, you know, attracted a weird bunch of uh, North African, Middle Eastern uh, actually, like we had a lot of African and Middle Eastern students and a lot of them have gone back to their home countries and done really interesting things. I was just chatting yesterday with a friend of mine who is, or who was most recently the mayor of Kabul. Oh, wow. Yes. That's so unique. Right? <laughs> That's so unique. It's so crazy. Like, right? And like in a WhatsApp chat right now, I have three of my closest friends. Like my debate partners were from Zimbabwe, Botswana and, and Yemen. Those were my three closest friends in uni, right? Mm -hmm. So a very different worldview. But at the same time, like outside of, of MMU, like the, the relationships I made with people who studied in um, the US, in Europe, in Australia, I still keep in touch with them. But what's interesting is debating with those people was a confidence building um, exercise, right? So when you get into a room and you're debating with someone from Harvard and you didn't make it there mm. and you win that round, yeah. it changes something inside of you. It starts to make you believe that, hey, I'm not just some... Schmuck. Schmuck, third world kid. Yeah. Because, you know, when you grow up in Asia, you have, uh, you know, a little bit of, of white worship, a little bit of, of like an idea that people from first world countries are better than you. And then you get into debating and you start winning rounds and you say, hey, maybe I'm not that bad after all. And, mm -hmm. and that compounds as well, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So more than the network, it's actually the confidence building that does most of the changes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm getting lost in your story just listening. Sorry. It's very, no, it's very, very fascinating. Um, 
Okay, so to go back to the question originally. So yes, yeah, sorry. You were um, focused on money. Yes. At that point in time. Yeah. Uh, were, were you jaded or what did you feel like you missed out? Even though you had this amazing experience. Maybe, I don't know if you appreciate it at the time. Maybe a little bit of it did, but you mm. understand how the impact would affect your future. Right? You didn't know back then. Yeah. Um, so where did this, I mean, probably not an obsession, but then why the focus on money? So the, the, the focus was simply because I wanted to break the cycle, right? I, I looked back at my parents, their parents before them, and I just saw us living this life. Um, and I didn't want my kids to grow up, you know, with a lack of resources, right? Mm-hmm. So I simply said, I want to break out that cycle and I want to make it big. Um, firstly, that was probably the first idea. The second is that the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of inquisitiveness just for itself didn't make sense anymore mm-hmm. right so i liked physics because it felt like it felt like it was the search for an ultimate truth behind reality mm-hmm. right uh, it, it, it helped me you know i grew up loving maths and, and breaking down logical puzzles and physics was like the ultimate exercise in logical puzzles mm-hmm. but if you don't have enough to you know eat then what's the point of that right uh and to be honest like you know even though i had a scholarship at from telecom the scholarship covered my academic uh cost of of doing my studies um and i think they gave me 600 ringgit a month which is not much right i mean back then still not much back then still not much right Um, um so actually what happened was i started a couple of businesses i don't know if you can call them businesses they weren't very legal we didn't have like an actual <laughs> company running these things but you know i did furniture sales i did uh we had like a car rental like a very low-tech version of zipcar okay, so you're very entrepreneurial right? yeah but we're just trying to make ends meet but it was driven by money again yes and that, but of course you know it's it's not simply greed if you look like you said you have a whole nuanced story of as to why you know breaking a cycle and it's, it's a powerful motivator you know i think uh we're the same age right I think growing up, I had come to the same conclusion that money was important too. Of course, it wasn't the main thing. Mm. Um, I knew that my parents were poor immigrants as well. They had afforded a life opportunity that was, I mean, I had so many things. I think contrasting, you know, I was maybe middle, middle class, I guess, in America. But it's already in America, which is good enough. Like the standard of living also very high. Mm. And um, I knew that if I wanted a family in the future, I wanted to provide more. So that means... I guess it's not necessarily true that, you know, if you pick an art degree that you can't make it happen, but uh, conventionally probably odds are against you, right? Mm. And I kind of come to that conclusion too when I was younger. So, yeah. So that also helped shape a lot of my decisions about, you know, what I wanted to do and progress. And I, I think, you know, it, you had something similar in that you wanted a bit, there's a bare minimum need. Yeah. And it acts as a very powerful filter to help decision-making going forward. Absolutely. Right? So like uh, when, when I have a lot of interns or staff and I try to teach them different ways to think about how do you want to you know, iterate your life or career, right? well, one way is knowing what you really want mm. and then just saying no to everything that doesn't fit it. That's just kind of like the bottom-up approach. Of course, there's the other Paul Graham approach where you know you kind of look at, uh, sorry, maybe it's the other way about it's top-down. And Paul Graham is bottom-up where you kind of, uh, you know, you, you look at the world and you don't know what you don't know. The, mm. There's future jobs that will be created in the future you just don't know about because yeah. it's just the technology's not there yet. So the best thing you can do is just look for solving hard problems. And if you keep solving hard problems, then eventually you know, it opens more doors. So yeah. So I guess what was interesting, what I heard, is some, something similar to me, that like you had this powerful filter that was just blocked out. Yeah, right? and so, yeah. And, and, and if I could just add to that, I think, so on top of that, I think what happens is, and I don't know if you have the same experience, but it's this idea that if you can't be the greatest or really good at it, 
then why even bother right so for example i think i think with physics in particular because very few physicists actually come out inventing really new interesting physics and a lot of that just end up doing yeah. i don't know getting into data science yeah. <laughs> it makes you actually question why do you even do it yeah. and now that i have hindsight i realize that that's such a silly way to think yes i that's, i was i was going about to bring that up right, right? so when when you're younger and i mean because that's what everyone tells you yeah right? the world tells you that uh, you know if you're you're not the best at it then why why bother doing it but that means there are so many people who didn't even attempt it who maybe would have been brilliant at it yes right yes and of course there's you're you're, you're forced to kind of learn it in a certain way that might not be conducive to you and absolutely only later on you realized uh, knowledge is like a, a web it's not necessarily always linear yeah and i was listening to another podcast on, on on the knowledge project where a mathematician was being interviewed and he brought up that point too i mean certain things of course must build on top of each other but if you start in one area it's a web it connects you don't correct. need to do one in the other no. correct and no one tells you that growing up and and it's it's actually we put so much of a of a focus on being smart and being really good as opposed to just putting hard work right i think what happens to kids like me who did good at math in high school is you kind of take it for granted that you're good at it and you don't realize the value of just putting in work right yeah. darwin sucked at school he just had bad grades throughout school and yet he discovered natural selection and yeah. evolution right and the reason why he did that was he didn't get a medical degree so he had to be on a ship <laughs> to be their like on ship doctor right and if he hadn't sucked in school he wouldn't have had been in that situation so actually uh, who who says this i think it's malcolm gladwell that says you you also get advantages from disadvantages right yeah. so me growing up the way i did probably made me a hustler yes. darwin not getting yes. the medical school school made him be more inquisitive about this yeah i have a theory that a lot of people enjoy some form of success as an entrepreneur uh, they had early hardships um even as myself growing up uh, it's not going to be the same as someone who was poor right i had food and and not to worry about that but uh being too comfortable made me too lazy often mm. and i always wanted to be on the other side i always <laughs> wanted to be successful but every time you try because you're too lazy and it compounds you know you're never good enough you're never good enough you're, you know you're something's wrong with you and yeah. and then at some point you know you you start trying to do things and you find out you actually can do them like you said with your discovery and yeah. you can actually be the harvard guy you know you're a poor kid from not poor but you were yeah. a decent kid from iraq right? <laughs> yeah so i guess on your next phase right so you kind of end up graduating mm. um and then during your whole time during university year you are coaching right and i guess uh i guess i could categorize this one next section of your early career before you got into bcg mm. right uh, so i'll just quickly summarize right so you went to work for clsa yeah that's right which is a equity research and uh, brokerage i believe for uh, asia that's right uh, their parent company is a chinese brokerage company who's always trying to be the goldman sachs of china but hasn't quite succeeded even to this day right? <laughs> yes um, <laughs> So you did that and you were also I think that was during school, right? That was during school. Yeah, so yeah. it was an internship or So it was an internship but I extended it uh with an ex- additional semester. So it was five months, okay. Yeah. And you were coaching at the same time. Yeah. Uh then after that you graduated uh you you actually went to go work for TM. Uh was that required or So it was required. So basically I had a ridiculous contract. I had uh for every year that i had a scholarship for i had to work for tm for 2 years okay so i was bonded to them for 8 years which which is very common in malaysia people get bonded to jobs if someone pays for the yes. scholarship right? yes yes yeah. but i mean for a sense of scale it was a 40000 ringgit scholarship oh, i was bonded for 8 years oh that's crazy <laughs> which seems a bit unfair yeah. right um but so i worked with them for 3 months or 4 months uh, i did i did a um, management trainee program so they put me on rotation and in that process i was interviewing um 
with um, a few companies and BCG at the same time. And oh, okay. Yeah. I see. So, so okay. at the same time, so you, you were forced to do this, but then uh, you were also looking at other opportunities. Yes. Yes. Um, back then you were achieving at BCG, but that, nothing probably happened. I got the BCG offer during my telecom days. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Because I see that you have a lot of other experiences, right? I, I noticed that from your graduation, there was a two-year gap too, right? No. So, so technically I graduated in 2010. Okay. Yeah. So I did, so I did CLSA uh, in 2009 from July to maybe November, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I actually had to go back to MMU to finish my thesis. Ah, okay. So I did my thesis while I was doing my thesis. I traveled a fair bit um, and did a lot of coaching, right? So kind Mm -hmm. of uh, paid the bills by coaching in Macau, Brunei, um, oh, for the debate. For debate, yes. Yeah, so I did debate and public speaking coaching, um, which was actually just an excuse to travel and, and you know, have a fun time <laughs> yeah. and kind of figure out what I wanted to do in life. Because a lot of people who who were my counterparts in debating actually ended up getting careers related to it, like mm-hmm. you know, going to Qatar to coach debate uh, oh, as a full time job. So it was, it was an interesting yeah. option, um, and I think I I remember writing to myself at that time and not knowing exactly what I was going to do next in life. Like you know, I kind of didn't want to become a corporate rat but at the same time i you know was driven to do like social impact ngo stuff so i wasn't really sure where i was going to go um but then i i basically tm called me and said listen you got to show up (laughs) right so i think that call came what maybe april april of 2010 Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's when i i worked so I, i finished my thesis uh then went to work for for yeah, TM. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, what what happened from 2011 to 2012? Because I saw that eventually, in 2013, you're at the World Bank, and then later ah, on, okay, never- got it. So, so what happened was this: I worked with, so I joined BCG in July 2010. I joined BCG in July 2010. Um, so, interesting fact is BCG at the time didn't really hire from local Malaysian universities. Um, so, I was a bit of a guinea pig. Um, you were the first. I, I, I've heard that there were others before me, um, but I don't know whether they lasted. I, in record, there's one person from 1992 who was hired from a local university. But basically between 1992 and 2010, for 18 years, there was no one else uh, on, on in the directory. Um, and um, it was an interesting experiment for them um, because they wanted to see if there was a ready group of candidates to hire from within Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm proud to say that after me, we actually established the recruiting program to hire locally. From locals. Yes. And now we have a bunch of guys who are just incredible. That's um, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what, you know, what, what kind of was, um, was painful was I actually did a year um, extra on top of what BCG associates usually do. So I had, I had a year of probation, so to speak. It's very unfair. It's very unfair. I mean... I, I was quite bitter about that, but you know what? You, you take what you... Like. Do, you do you have anything to say to the partners? The privilege? You, you know what? I have to say this. They were taking a chance and I'm very, very fortunate to have been given that opportunity mm. because BCG changed my life, right? Yeah. And opened a ton of doors afterwards. And, and you know, you talked about mentors just now, you know, from from, from Miss Fu to, to Logan, eventually Tate in university. And then there was Vincent, who was my mentor in, in BCG and who incredibly shaped a lot of my thinking and, and my way of living. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the one who probably had to, you know, pull the trigger. And mm-hmm. it was not the easiest decision to make, right? Um, 
because they had a track record. They hired from Princeton, Harvard, yes, Yale, correct. right? And now you wanted to hire someone from <laughs> multimedia university. Like, <laughs> is that even a real name, right? So he had to take a risk. And to them, it was a you know, it's a cost benefit analysis. Do we pay this guy, you know, a third what we pay everyone else, and give him a role where he can do grunt work at the worst, or if I, if we're right? He's better than everyone else, and and we keep him, and we get a good deal. Mm-hmm. And to me, worst case, I get BCG on my CV for like three months before yeah. they fire me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Best case, I get a full time job and I work at BCG, which is you know yeah. uh, was a dream. Also, I had no clue that BCG existed before two thousand and ten. That's fascinating. How, how come you didn't know? Dude, I went to MMU. No one knew BCG was a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess. Uh, in- was it fair to say in Southeast Asia it's not as a big a thing back then, right? Not at all. Management consulting Nothing. was not widespread as it Nothing. is now. No one in my uni even spoke about it. Mm-hmm. The only reason I knew BCG existed as a thing was the CLSA. Someone in CLSA told me about BCG and he was an ex-Accenture guy and, and we spoke about consulting. Then I researched it and it seemed fascinating what they did. Is it fair to say in the last 10 years uh, consulting has become much more prestigious then than it was say, before the aughts? <laughs> Tough to say in the in the weird pocket that I live, yes, but I don't know if most Malaysians even know what it is. Yeah. Well, because I feel that at least when I was in university, uh, it's all about investment banking. Yeah. Maybe because I'm also from East Coast, right? So uh, it's it's more like uh, you know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, all these kind of things. But uh, didn't really hear about people from consulting, I guess. Even though I was in New York. Global globally, I think it's actually gotten less popular. Like okay. yeah, more more graduates are getting into startup and you know big tech companies That's instead of consulting. Now. That's a new trend now, right? Follow the money. I guess. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, let's let's go back. So, your what was I mean? You were kind of a guinea pig of, amongst other people. Yes. Was your selection process different then? Like, how do they know that? It's like kind of pick the lottery, right? So they, they talked to you or did you go through the same process? No, no. So I, I applied and I think they they hadn't received that many applications from Malaysia. <laughs> okay. I, I think so it, that helped. Yeah, it definitely helped. I, I mean, I think it was just like, a, you know, a, a decent cover letter and a, a bit more uh, of a hustly attitude. I think I was very hustly. Yeah. Uh, like I, I remember, I think Vincent was like pushing me uh, in that final round of interviews. And I might have actually said like, you know, I, I seemed like I would do it for less. Which kind of backfired <laughs> in in its own way, but you know, I just wanted to get my foot in the door, right? Yeah. Uh, and for context, like I think I got rejected from maybe thirty over places, right? I got a rejection from McKinsey, from okay. from Bain, from Goldman Sachs, from J. Like I so you were applying everywhere. I applied everywhere. I applied everywhere. I got rejected everywhere. I got I got lots of local jobs. Uh, and then I had BCG and I had local jobs that paid more than what BCG was going to pay me mm. for that year. So I had to make a decision of being paid less. How did you have that foresight? Well, I knew what it was going to do for me if I was able to stick around. Okay, so you did enough research before or during to find out this was actually a huge thing? Before and like, I'd say between CLSA and then was when I realized what it was going to do. And did you know going into it that you were going to get paid less than other people? No, only when the offer came. I I remember that offer call being like, congratulations, you got this. And I was like, yeah. And then he explained the role and I was like, whoa, you know, (laughs) I'm going to need a bit more context here. I don't know if I should be happy. Yeah. 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 Um, So that sounds like, yeah, BCG was really important to you personally, right? It was. Um, It was. And I, well, did it answer the money question for you when you were, because you were in university, you're focused on money. Yeah, and you kind of got this weird offer. Did you know that it's gonna compound to something much more 
more money later? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw it, right? I, I knew, I, the, the good thing about something like consulting is very transparent what the jumps are. Okay. Everybody gets paid the same at the same levels, yeah. right? So I knew if I stuck around for a year, what that would mean for me. That being said, it sucked because I hung out with people who were getting paid a lot more than me, which means we'd go out for drinks yeah. <laughs> and I'd, you know, not have access. But, you know, whatever. You you make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and also just like, again, like life turns out to be a confidence building exercise, right? For yeah. me, the first few months was rough because I was surrounded by people who went to incredible universities mm-hmm. who seemed very polished and smart. And I just sucked. And generally, I, I, no, I also wasn't very good. I also wasn't very good as a consultant my first couple of months. I was terrible my first couple of months. Uh, was it because these guys well, had the advantage of knowledge beforehand and you were green and you didn't know or they were just inherently better people? So it's a, it's a very complex topic, but I've dissected it before, right? It ultimately comes down to this. I came from a very Malaysian education system where I believed that there were authority figures either politicians or teachers or bigger people than me who had all the answers and the back of the textbooks had all the answers, right? Mm. So I believed in an objective truth that was there that I didn't have the intelligence, knowledge or foresight to be able to see, right? Mm. And I believe these other people with authority had more of it than Mm. I did, right? That resulted in a very silly way of being, which was I put ego in the way, I wouldn't ask questions when I should have asked questions. I should have been a bit more humble and said, I have no clue how to do this. Like what makes people succeed at BCG is the same thing that makes a lot of entrepreneurs succeed. You try something, if it doesn't work, you quickly go and ask for answers. Um, Don't sit down quietly and pretend like you know what you're doing, which is what I did my first three months. Ah. Yeah. That, that I feel, yeah, wouldn't be something systemic. I think it feels very personal based off your personal experience. Absolutely. And, uh, kind of what shaped that. So I guess you didn't have that exposure to, to know that it was okay to ask. Yeah. I guess maybe it's also culturally tied. I noticed with a lot of younger uh, you know, interns or staff I've had to hire. Yeah. Uh, you have to develop the thinking heavily a lot. I didn't want to seem stupid. Mm. I didn't want everyone to see this chip on my shoulder that yeah. I was the only kid from a local university. <laughs> and yes, of course, I didn't yeah. know anything, right? So I pretended to be better than I was. Uh, it backfired. Terribly. I almost got fired in my first... You were on Because they have this policy if you're on the bottom. Co- uh, yeah, out, and I was. I was. Called. Yeah. So my first two months, I think I was pretty much like, I was sure I was getting fired. And then Vincent shipped me off to Korea. Because so I spent my first year, most of my first year, actually in a petrochemical mm. plant. Yeah. Um, and what really helped then was because I was outside of the system, Mm, you don't feel the pressures, right? They didn't know I, any context about me and I didn't feel the pressure and I was able to like flourish. You're able to reform finally. Yes. Uh, was that foresight from Vincent or he's just yeah. like, get this kid out of here? <laughs> no, no, I think, I mean, well, he'll take credit for it. Of course not. Yeah. But I, I think it was foresight. I'd like to believe that I have had benevolent people who've looked after me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so correct me if you're wrong. Um, you kind of grew up uh, you knew you had some disadvantages. You faced some systemic issues where you couldn't get scholarships. You couldn't leave, right? Uh, would, is it fair to say you felt you were on the other track kind of guy, right? You know, there's people on the right track, uh, best private schools. They have money. They go to Ivy League. They get BCG job first try. Yeah. Did you feel you were the other track kind of guy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, now I have the maturity to not whine about it, mm-hmm. but I definitely was very upset at the cards that I've been dealt, right? Mm-hmm. I felt like I worked hard. I felt like I had, you know, generally like, like 
It sucked that I had lots of interest and curiosity. I mean, to give you a silly example that I still, you know, bitch about is, uh, I never went to music lessons. I had to self-teach myself music because my parents said, we didn't go to uni and our biggest priority is to get you into uni. So anything outside of that is useless. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it pissed me off that I had to teach myself on a 70 ringgit guitar, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but hey, a lot of that makes you who you are, right? Yeah, correct. Builds your character. Yeah. So um, you finally get the job to BCG. And I mean, you had a taste of this earlier. You had beaten kids who were from Harvard in debate, but now you're inside the club. Yeah. You, you made it. Did I you feel it. that? or? It took a while to feel that. Definitely not my first year. I think when I got promoted and became, you know, an associate, that's when I felt it. Uh, and then I started to feel like I was, you know, doing relatively well, uh, getting embedded in it. It took me about maybe 18 months, 24 months to feel really comfortable in it. Mm -hmm. And then I started to run and, and do really well at BCG. Did you think this affected your identity or personality in any way? Absolutely. I think ultimately success comes down to gradually building. Like, if you're lucky, you're born in an environment that exposes you to lots of confidence. Yeah. You are able to sit down at the table with CEOs yeah. and speak as if they were your peers. Double-edged sword, though, right? There needs to be some substance behind the confidence, too, right? You know, I, I feel like, maybe this is an Asian-Western thing, but I feel like in Asia, you have a lot more people with, like, 20%, you know, 80% substance, but pretend like they have 20% because they're just so humble mm. and don't want to even open their mouths. Mm. And then you have, you know, a lot of people, especially Americans who have like, you know, very little substance, but are able to speak so confidently. And I feel like the right answer is somewhere in between. But when you start off, uh, you know, with just being unconfident, you, you never get a seat at the table, right? You always feel like the seat behind the table is yours and you deserve to sit there. Do you think that's uh, old school management theory? Because there's this whole, like, I don't want to say new school of thought, but, you know, the, the whole idea, trend of uh, introverted leadership and different forms of listening, right? Do you feel that uh, that's a little bit biased? Mm, so I think they're independent ideas, right? Being confident doesn't mean you're not a good listener, True. right? Right. Yeah, so yeah. you can be, like, take Sundar Pichai uh, at Google, right? Like, he's... He's a generally a, the kind of guy that almost seems blameless. Nobody really has anything negative to say about this guy. Yeah. He's a great listener. He's a great product leader. But at the same time, he's also uh, someone who has a front seat at the table, who's very confident when he speaks, mm -hmm. right? I think that's what people should aspire to. Mm -hmm. uh, but that takes a bit of... You, if you lean too far on, on confidence without substance, then it's ego and you mm -hmm. just sound like an arrogant fool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I remember I was speaking to this one engineer and he had a really good quote. It's like, uh, there's a fine line between, uh, self-confidence and, and, um, was it Ari what we're arrogance? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, people, people really sometimes just believe they're right, but then, uh, they've really nothing to back it up, I guess. Mm. So it sounds like you had a very fulfilling experience at BCG. Yes, I did. Uh, why did you end up leaving then? So, um, I guess, let's see, and, and here's with the context that a lot of ex-consultants or current consultants could listen to this at some point. Um, I think most consultants get um, interested in the idea of being operational and no longer just strategic. Mm -hmm. um, so it's nice to tell people what to do, but the real world, there are externalities and the effects of your suggestions and you want to be able to be in the driving seat to see what happens. Mm -hmm. That's the first reason. The second is you, I guess, 
a lot of consulting is just you know coming up with ideas upselling and then upselling some more right you yeah. you want to be able to just like build something um so what happened and you asked me about the world bank and endeavor was uh, at bcg you which first of all it's an incredible place to work right you you're working with the smartest people you have um incredible fun incredible exposure you travel across the globe on these projects uh, and you get to do something that feels like it's awesome work right um but and then on top of that these guys are incredible enough to give you time off if you so wish to uh to do stuff that you're interested in right so i think context was i was thinking about going to b school um i was well i was i was opening up my my world to other few things one becoming more entrepreneurial two going to b school and underlying all of that i was still itching about living abroad right you still are <laughs> still are still are you're right still are okay uh, why why okay i feel this is such a common pattern though why why business school because i thought it would open more doors uh, looking back now and where you are hey listeners this is where our sound got cut off due to technical difficulties as andrew's story demonstrates life is not a perfect straightforward path even though andrew had big dreams of working in stem and living abroad He had an equally or more compelling experience due to a combination of great people in his life, working hard when it counted, figuring out how to move forward when everything seemed down and a little bit of luck. To me, what really stood out was that Andrew had many good teachers and mentors who he was able to get direct feedback from. If Andrew's teacher hadn't lent him a book on financial engineering, he may not have ended up at Multimedia University. Without being influenced by high school debate, he would not have joined the debate team at MMU, which ended up being critical for his interview at BCG, which eventually allowed him to access a top role at Lazada. Life is often sometimes a series of good decisions, whether we know it or not. If you liked Andrew's story, please share it on social media. Feel free to go to entrepreneursofasia.com slash podcast and let us know your thoughts. Check back in a few weeks' time for part two. Next week, we will have another exciting story from a new guest. Until then.